0: transformational giving is really the opposite of delusional altruism. So transformational giving is seeking to have a transformational impact on whatever, again, issue, cause, community that you care about, but doing that in part by transforming yourself as a donor and how you give. And so when I say a transformational impact on whatever issue or cause, what I mean is really creating lasting change. So using your philanthropy in such a way that you're not just kind of putting band-aid solutions on problems that once the money goes away, the problem will reemerge, but really thinking about how do you get to the root cause of this issue? or How do you create change so that the change lasts beyond maybe your lifetime or even your giving?
1: Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Chris Putnam-Walkerly, president of Putnam Consulting Group. Chris Putnam-Walkerly is a global philanthropy expert who helps ultra-high net worth donors, foundations, and Fortune 500 companies increase the clarity, impact, and joy of their charitable giving. Chris is a trusted advisor to the world's leading philanthropists. For over 20 years, ultra-high net worth donors, foundations, Fortune 500 companies, Celebrity activists and wealth advisors have all sought her advice to transform their giving and catapult their impact. She has helped over 100 philanthropists strategically allocate over a half a billion dollars in grants and gifts. Her clients include the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, J.M. Smucker Company, Charles and Helen Schwab Foundation, and Avery Dennison Foundation, among many others. Chris was named one of America's top 25 philanthropy speakers and is the author of the award-winning book, Confident Giving, Sage Advice for Funders. Listen in for some great takeaways on what philanthropy is, how philanthropists can change the world, and the impact that you can make. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here. I have the pleasure of being with Chris Putnam-Walkerly, president of Putnam Consulting Group Inc. And as you all know, I am very charitably inclined. I love giving. And as I said before, it shouldn't be giving till you're hurt. It should be giving till you feel good. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today with Chris about how she helps folks in this area. So welcome to the show, Chris.
0: Thank you so much, Larry.
1: Just so we, our listeners have a little bit of background about who you are, where you came from, and how you got to this point, could you tell our listeners about your path to being the president of Putnam Consulting Group?
0: Sure. And I'll start by saying what I do today so you can see where I'm headed. So I'm a global philanthropy advisor, coach, and strategist. I work with ultra-high net worth donors and leaders of foundations and corporate giving programs to help them give their money away effectively on the issues and causes they care about. And I started my journey. I was always interested in the nonprofit sector. That was really where I was working. I ended up getting a master's in social work and thought that I wanted to run nonprofit social service agencies. That was my goal. But I took some classes while in grad school on evaluation and how do you evaluate the effectiveness of social service programs and and, organizations. and I became really intrigued by that because, you know, you want to learn what's working, what's not working, so you can fix it and improve. And so after grad school, I went to work at Stanford University, where I was evaluating youth and gang violence prevention programs throughout California. And I liked the job a lot, and it was funded entirely by one foundation, the California Wellness Foundation, which was at the time really seeking to, it was a new foundation, and they were seeking to shift people's awareness around youth violence, from a criminal justice issue to more of a prevention and public health problem. And I was really impressed by the way they approached this issue, trying to not only support community-based organizations and schools, but also funding research on gun violence prevention, supporting policy change, kind of all different levels of change. And so I thought it would be great to go work for a foundation. So I did. I went to work at the David and Lucille Packard Foundation. That's the family foundation of Dave Packard of HP. At the time, it was one of the largest in the world. And I you know, learned I love philanthropy and began doing some consulting on the side, learned I liked consulting in philanthropy and decided to go out on my own. That was during the dot-com boom in Silicon Valley, San Francisco. So I joke that when I started my business, I got clients by answering my email and picking up the phone because <laughs> everyone was trying to give their money away right. and make a difference.
1: That's awesome. Where does this passion for philanthropy come from? Does it root back to your childhood or where does it uh, stem from?
0: No, it's a great question that I don't have a wonderful answer to. I've always been interested in kind of U.S. policy abroad and the nonprofit sector. But a funny story, in college, I became kind of a student activist. I was trying to help change U.S. policy in Central America. And I organized a student demonstration to go to some march on Washington for changing U.S. policy in Central America, and I found myself caught up in a demonstration that I wasn't expecting to be part of, and I got arrested along <laughs> with other people that were doing civil disobedience. And this was, gosh, back in nineteen late 80s, 1980s, and so there were no cell phones. My friends and I had gotten separated. Anyway, so I, I wasn't expecting to get arrested. I'm, I don't know, 20 years old, and they load us into a bus, and the guy says, sit down to the first available seat. Well, I sat down at the first available seat, turned to my right, and I was sitting next to Ed Asner, the actor, who was also part of there were some celebrities that were, you know, intentionally getting themselves arrested to promote, you know, to get media coverage and whatnot. So I spent, I don't know, four hours talking to Ed Asner, the actor, and he asked me the exact same question. How did you get involved in this? (laughs) Like, why are you here? You know, you're young. Was it your parents? What's going on? And I didn't have a great answer at the time for him either. But, you know, it's just, I guess at the end of the day, it's all about helping others. And there's all different ways that we can help other people. And for me, ultimately, using philanthropic dollars to change people's lives, both the philanthropists, really, but of course, more importantly, the people, the philanthropists are trying to help and really using that money for good.
1: Yeah. I mean, listen, I have always been involved in philanthropy, going back to my younger days, raising money for breast cancer awareness. And I was honored by the Multiple Sclerosis Foundation. And now, as most of our listeners know, I sit on the national board for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which has been a uh, passion of mine for the last 16 years, 17 years or so since we lost my brother-in-law to suicide. So mental health is something that's important to me. And I have definite roots back there, you know, to a very young age. And I think that anybody who wants to have an impact on the world, we have a responsibility as entrepreneurs, as business people, not only to rise to the highest level we can and do the best we can for our clients and for our businesses, but I think we also have somewhat of a responsibility to help others. And I love the work that you're doing and I appreciate it. So thank you for that.
0: You're welcome. Well, thank you for your service on the suicide prevention board. I mean, that's such an important issue and mental health is such a critical issue and becoming even more so with all that's going on in the world.
1: Agreed. Agreed. So let's say somebody's here listening and they've never had the ability or they've never gotten involved being philanthropic, right? How does one start the process of being philanthropic and starting their, as you say, philanthropic giving journey?
0: Well, I think it starts with starting with the right questions and the three questions I suggest people start with and in this order are why, what and how and why is really thinking about the why of your philanthropy. Why do you kind of exist? And it's really thinking about your purpose. What is your philanthropic purpose? Kind of what stake do you want to have in the ground? And so really getting clarity on your why. So I was working with one very philanthropic family, which is, many of you will be familiar with their product. It's the Gojo Industries. So Gojo makes Purell. Mm -hmm. And that family kind of really gave some thought to the why of their philanthropy. And the why had a lot to do with wanting to be philanthropic as a family. So to, to use philanthropy as a way to bring the family together across generations and across geographies, as a way to continue to learn together and to give back together. And so the reason I state the importance of this is that once you have clarity on your why, why you exist as a funder or as a donor, a lot can stem from that. So they've organized their philanthropy around that purpose. For example, there's lots of different ways you can give money away, but one of the things they've chosen to do is they pick one cause every three years and they spend time as a family learning about that particular cause and then identifying organizations they want to support, making those grants and then partnering with those organizations for a few years and together learning about the experiences that those nonprofits had and the impact that their funding had. After three years, they go on and they pick a different issue together. Once they had clarity on their why, then they could figure out the rest of it. So the second question is what? And really, this is could be a series of questions, but what kind of impact do I want to have on the world? What issues or causes do I care about or do we care about as a family or as a company? What do we want to be accomplishing, let's say, a year from now or five years from now with our giving? Right. So getting clarity on, really, it's kind of where you're headed, what you want to accomplish with your philanthropy, and only then ask the third question, which is how. So given my purpose as a philanthropic family... What we want to accomplish is increasing access, I'm making this up, increasing access to mental health services for young people, low-income families in our community, or whatever, domestic violence treatment, substance abuse treatment, arts education, you know, pick your issue, then figure out how, right? How might be we want to get involved in a community-wide initiative that's working on this, or how might be there's a couple nonprofits we really believe in, and their leaders are amazing, and we want to support those leaders to Increase their effectiveness and stay in the organization and, and grow, or how might be we want to make sure that there's health insurance parity. So, such that, you know, mental health needs are supported through health insurance in the same way that other physical health needs are. And so we want to advocate for that or whatever, right? But the how you can think about it as strategy versus tactics, right? So, your right. strategy is your what, what are you trying to accomplish? The tactics are the how. Too often, I think, people make the mistake of focusing on the tactics. They focus on the how before they have clarity on the what, you know, the what and the why. I agree. And so it's easy because there's so many issues, there's so many causes, there's so many different ways to give, right? And it can be easy to get caught up in all the how, all the tactics, without having clarity in what you're trying to accomplish.
1: I was reading about that, and you you outlined those questions very well in, in your new book, Delusional Altruism, and I kind of kept drawing a line from what you were talking about in nonprofit and philanthropy world to business. I mean, basically, I think there's almost this direct correlation that if you're looking to start or refine a business, you almost want to ask these same questions in the same way that you would normally do for the business as you do for these philanthropic efforts, right?
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's really no different. I think for our personal lives, for our philanthropic work, for our business, I think it's always important to have clarity on your strategy, what it is you're trying to accomplish, looking at where you are today, and then how do I get from where I am today to where I want to be in the next year, the next three years, whatever it is, and get started on on doing that.
1: Yeah. So listen, as someone who works directly with families and, and corporate foundations that are in this philanthropy world every day, what ultimately drives philanthropy? A lot of people talk about, oh, well, it's tax benefits. There's a whole host of areas. And what I've learned over the years, and I'm curious as to what you think, is that it ultimately is not those things. It's a lot of other things that are almost intangible to some degree. What do you think drives philanthropy?
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. It really is not the tax benefits. I believe it is truly the desire to give back. A lot of people recognizing that they have more money now than they ever thought they'd ever have in their lifetime, and they want to give back. People who think about, Meaningful experiences in their lives, be it positive experiences like a mentor who really helped or a coach who helped you as a child. And now you want to give back and be able to ensure that other young people have similar access to mentors and good coaches or youth development programs, whatever it might be. Or, like in your case, when you mentioned your brother in law passing from suicide, it might be a traumatic experience in your life or someone's illness or some other challenge growing up with a drug addicted parent, as I know one colleague that was his reason for wanting to give back and help the lives of others. So I really think it comes from a really positive place, a place of either wanting others to not experience the suffering that they've seen or wanting others to experience the benefits that they've had and just wanting to get back to a world that is given to them.
1: Yeah. I mean one other thing I would add in uh, that I've enjoyed from what we've done personally, my wife and I is the educational aspect for our young kids, showing them that being philanthropic should be something you should be thinking about, having them kind of know what's going on in the world and also understand that it's not just about us. There are other people out there that we can help and the ways that we're helping them, because hopefully that'll instill in them and continue that that process of being philanthropic as well. So you talk about those three questions prior, and I think that that's one way you probably work with your clients and the people that you're working with as far as in this process with families and foundations. Beyond that, how do you assist families and foundations through the philanthropic process?
0: Yeah, in a variety of ways, and it always really starts with them meaning I work with my clients where they're at. So just in the past month, I've talked to the CEO of a very large company whose product I'm sure most of your listeners will have eaten or consumed, but I can't say the name, That is has been charitable but wants to be more focused and strategic. It's a family business. They want to engage the family. And so it's really helping them start that more strategic and philanthropic journey. We're going to start by giving a session at one of their family meetings about philanthropy and the ways they can get involved, but ultimately will help them create a family foundation that they can all participate in. Another woman is a I just spoke to is a CEO, new CEO of a foundation and just needs coaching and guidance. It's not her family. It's another family. Uh, she's the professional staff, but she's the only staff. And she wants support in helping her to help her family navigate their philanthropic journey But ultimately, it does come down to, as I said before, kind of helping folks identify what it is they want to accomplish, looking closely at where they are today. Where they are today could be, I have no idea what I'm doing, (laughs) and and we just sold our business, and now we have a lot of money, and now what do we do? Or it could be, we've been doing this for 20 years. We just want to change direction or change course, looking at where they are today and helping them figure out how they shift from where they are today to where they want to be with their philanthropy and have the impact they want to have. I do that in a variety of ways. A lot of times, it's as a trusted advisor and coach. A lot of my clients retain me as their advisor to kind of help them stay accountable to their goals and navigate their philanthropic journey so that they're not alone. Because it can be a very lonely place to be, right? Either because you are ultra wealthy, and that can be alienating in its own ways. And people are always asking you for money. And so how do you navigate that? Or it could be because you're the CEO and that's a lonely place because, you know, you can't always talk to your staff or your board. So I serve as that coach and trusted advisor and also strategist. I do a lot of strategic planning, facilitate strategy development and strategy implementation. Because as I'm sure you know, a lot of times strategy fails in its implementation. As sure. hard as it might be to figure out what you're trying to do, making it all happen and aligning your talent and your systems and operations, it can be the more daunting part of it
1: yeah and being an outside fresh set of eyes that's always helpful to anything whether it's a philanthropic effort or even a, uh, a corporate effort it's always good to have those fresh set of eyes helping you and guiding you so what are four ways that philanthropists change the world i know we're in a world that's constantly changing so that's tough enough but how do they go about changing the world
0: Yeah. So it's an interesting question because I think it has probably felt like the beginning of this decade has been particularly turbulent and it feels like conditions keep changing. But the reality is, is that the future is no more uncertain today than it was last decade or last century, really. agree. And
1: I think it just gets reported on more frequently. (laughs) Maybe it does, (laughs) right? More
0: rapidly. The headlines change. So regardless of what you're passionate about, if it's climate change or reforestation or it's domestic violence prevention or whatever i think a couple things one is to shift your mindset i think extraordinarily successful philanthropists do a few things they change their mindset and they recognize that yes the future is uncertain but it's no more uncertain today than it was you know than it ever has been and the reality is is that disruption and volatility are the status quo like that's just real that's our reality it always has been and so i think they change their mindset And rather than allowing the idea of an unknown future to paralyze them, they let it free them because you can't possibly plan for every contingency. We don't know what change is coming this year or next year, right? So you have to kind of change your mindset and and feel like, let that liberate you, let that free you. It's really shifting a mindset of kind of scarcity and fear to abundance and confidence, knowing that you can create a plan and change it along the way. So that's the first thing is change your mindset. I'd say the second thing is, as i've said you know to create that plan to go ahead right. despite all the constant change identify what you're trying to do let's say in the next 12 months and create that plan and then thirdly begin implementing it right away so just get started right don't wait mm-hmm. for more data don't wait for the next round of elections to happen like just start implementing it your plan and then the fourth is to make course corrections so you really want to you know create your plan quickly begin implementing it right away and change it as conditions change, because right. conditions will change, right? And of so course. literally, like, build that into your plan. So let's say you're a family, you're starting a foundation, or you come together and you want to support arts education in your community. You have a plan for how you're going to do it. You start implementing your plan. Like, literally, make a date on your calendar every quarter. Check in on your plan. How's it coming? Are we making progress as we had expected? Have things changed in the world or in our family? or our foundation, such that we need to make shifts and changes to how we're implementing it, or even what we're trying to do, make those changes, and then keep going, keep implementing right. it. Next quarter, do the same thing. So that the value of that, I believe, is that whether you're a person, you're a family, you're a corporate foundation, you always have a agile, sentient plan or strategy that's guiding where you're headed, helping inform your decisions, and then you can easily change that when things start to change. You'll have something to change as opposed to uh, the next crisis hits and you're, you know, you have no idea what to do or how to respond. So I think right. there's a lot of value to that. And again, regardless of whatever issue you're focusing on, you can make a lot of progress with your philanthropic giving.
1: So this resonates so well with me. And I'll tell you why, because what you're talking about is really at the root and the heart of what we do here at Midland Financial all the time, right? Is we talk about having a financial plan. Just in a different vein, right? We're not talking about giving money to philanthropy. And while well, that might be one component of somebody's plan, we're talking about how they're going to get to retirement or how their life's going to be after they sell a business or, or something along those lines. And we talk about those same things, having a plan, implementing it, making sure that we're reviewing it and course correcting along the way, because exactly same thing to your point, Right. Things are going around uh, all around us, and you can't put a plan together and expect that you just put it on the shelf and follow it. The plan, the minute you're done with it, is really outdated to some degree because something in the world or the universe has changed. So it's really in alignment kind of what we do with our clients and very similarly to what you do with yours. And secondly, this is the Midland Money Mindset, so I'm a little biased to that, but I love the talk about mindset. I think that's Mm -hmm. very important. I think we try to surround ourselves as a business, as a community, my stakeholders, myself, with people who have the abundance mindset, because those that have the scarcity mindset just are not going to help you and allow you to get where you need to be because it's just not a good fit. So it's tremendous. So I think the abundance mindset kind of plays in very well also about what you talk about transformational giving, right? Mm -hmm. So what is transformational giving?
0: Yeah, transformational giving is really the opposite of delusional altruism. So transformational giving is seeking to have a transformational impact on whatever, again, issue, cause, community that you care about but doing that in part by transforming yourself as a donor and how you give. And so when I say a transformational impact on whatever issue or cause, what I mean is really creating lasting change. So using your philanthropy in such a way that you're not just kind of putting Band-Aid solutions on problems that once the money goes away, the problem will reemerge, but really thinking about how do you get to the root cause of this issue? Or how do you create change so that, The change lasts beyond maybe your lifetime or even your giving. An example of that, I think that people will be familiar with from our COVID experience is when COVID hit, everybody was suddenly working from home and all of our children, I have 11-year-old twins, suddenly are there and you're trying to figure out how to homeschool them. But in my family, we fared pretty well, right? We had internet, we had extra laptops, we had all kinds of devices. I knew how to use it all and I could explain it to them. But a lot of families had nothing. They had no internet, they had no devices, or maybe the only internet access they had was the parent's phone that they obviously needed to use for work or for their own effort. And so the digital divide became abundantly obvious in our education system of families and whole school districts that really had very little access to, to being educated remotely and through the internet. And so an immediate response is to provide laptops to all those and devices to all those families, right? And that is great because in that moment like those kids needed to learn they needed internet access. So that's cool. However, I would say more transformational change is looking at well why do certain school districts public schools have less resources than other more wealthy public school districts, right? And how do we ensure that all students have access to this, you know, same high quality education. So really thinking right. more deeply about or how do you make sure everyone has internet access that's low cost or free or whatever? So those are kind of the transformational changes I'm talking about, but transforming yourself is really thinking about how you give, and that could be all kinds of things and I describe in the book, but you know, a lot of it is having clarity as on those three questions, your why, what's your purpose, what are you trying to accomplish, and your how, you know, how do you think you're best able to achieve your philanthropic goals and act and doing those? And there's all kinds of other ways that I think funders can change how they give. I think one of them it's really important Especially now, is ensuring that you're really listening to diverse perspectives and diverse voices informing you about what the needs are in the community and the kinds of organizations that you should support and really supporting a lot of organizations. It's easy to fund the big national groups, right? That we all hear about that have large marketing budgets, but thinking about more grassroots, local organizations run by community leaders really that know those communities and serve those communities well, I think it's important to support those kinds of groups too.
1: I agree. And I think what you're talking about with COVID kind of also plays into what I wanted to ask you next, which was some mistakes that philanthropists make during a crisis. And I think that that's probably a very relevant one, one we can talk about because it's happening, right? It just happened and we're in the midst of it to some degree. So what are a couple of those mistakes that you see philanthropists making during a crisis? I'm assuming one of them is going to be not following those three questions in that order <laughs> and kind of throwing that to aside and just kind of jumping in and wanting to do something right away. Probably number one. What are a couple others?
0: Yeah, well, one of them is, you know, a crisis could be, doesn't have to be a global pandemic. It could be sure. a wildfire. It could be a building collapse. It could be, you know, all something kinds of local. things. Something local. So one of them is to... A mistake that funders make is to step back. You know, a crisis happens and they kind of withhold themselves. They go into hiding. Maybe it's out of fear or not knowing what to do, but they actually withhold and step back. And I think the problem with that, of course, is that you have philanthropic dollars that could be helpful. And instead, what I suggest people do is really step in, right? Really engage. And that could be if you have been supporting your local homeless shelter, reach out to the homeless shelter executive director and say, hey, you know, like, what do you need? How can I help you? The help doesn't have to be money. I think right. it's also important to recognize that as donors, we have a lot more to give than cash. We mm-hmm. have our knowledge, our know how, our connections in the community, the people we can introduce nonprofits to, be it our Your bankers Business might have a
1: product that could help them, a right? Product.
0: There's all kinds you really think about all the ways you can give, it's really a lot. So I think instead of holding back, really engage, step into the, what's going on related is a second mistake is taking a wait and see approach. Meaning and this happened in COVID. A lot of people back in March, 2020 said, well, let's just wait and see how this whole crisis, this whole pandemic thing Please shakes out. out. And then, you know, maybe in six months when it's all over, <laughs> little <laughs> did we know, you know, then we'll figure out how to give. And so I think, again, kind of related to what I said before, I think instead what they need to do is really clarify what it is that they want to do, prioritize the ways that they can help, and then really just begin implementing and step into it. The third, though, is that a lot of donors want to maintain control. And I understand this because in a crisis, especially if we're experiencing the crisis, be it a wildfire in our community or a pandemic or whatever it might be we often feel like we've lost control, right? We feel a sense of loss of control. And so we try to like glom onto anything that we can control. And oftentimes that's our money. And the way that donors, I think, mistakenly try to maintain too much control with their giving is they dictate exactly what the money can be used for and not used for. And while that seems kind of prudent, or it might seem like you're being a good steward of your money... I think it's actually misguided because whatever you're funding, if it's a homeless shelter or the mental health needs of children in your community that are going through a crisis, I think you really want to free up that money and give it to the nonprofit as what's called a general operating support grant, which means or gift, which just means here is $10,000 or $10 million, whatever you're giving. I trust you, nonprofit, to use the money the best way you see fit because you know the issue, you know the community, you're seeing what's happening on the ground. And you're best able to navigate and utilize those resources. So I think instead of trying to maintain control in a crisis, actually to be more responsive and flexible with your dollars is a better way to go.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think if you're not willing to do that during the crisis, then maybe the charitable endeavor that you're affiliating with, maybe it's not or the organization, maybe it's not a good fit for you. And if it is a good fit, then you shouldn't feel... Terribly bad about giving up some of that control if it is a good fit, but comes down to that. So, if I'm not a philanthropist today, but I want to start delving into that, I want to start being an extraordinary philanthropist, right? Really good, you know, and I'm looking at doing that. What top two best practices should I start implementing in order to start working in that direction?
0: Yeah. Well, in addition to reading my book, Delusional Altruism, you mean?
1: Well, we'll talk (laughs) about that in a minute, but yes.
0: That would be a good first step. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the person I'm thinking of as you ask that question is Mackenzie Scott. So this is the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos, who is the richest woman in the country, if not beyond our borders. And so I'm sharing her as an example, not because we all have that much wealth, because I'm sure... Very few of us listening to this podcast have access to that much money. But nonetheless, I think she's been really effective in how she's given money away for a number of reasons. And she's given away, just to clarify, over $8 billion, with a B, billion dollars in the past 12 months alone, which is extraordinary wow. right. for anybody to pull off. And so a couple of things. One is, I think she simplifies the complex instead of complexifying the simple. So... She really identifies organizations that she believes in and they don't have to apply. She just calls them or somebody calls them and says, hey, we have a large grant. It's coming your way. Like, where do we send the check? Or what is your routing number at your bank? And we'll wire it to you, right? So she's eliminated applications. She's eliminated all the process of forcing nonprofits to jump through all these hoops to apply and all the site visits and interviews and all this stuff, right? She does her homework her team of advisors and her have done their homework to identify these organizations. But then they put simplicity into the actual transaction of getting giving them money. Right. So that's simplifying the process. And similarly on the back end, she would like a report as to how the money is used, but there's not a report with like 60 questions and like right. complex Excel spreadsheets of budgets. It's basically like, tell me how it was used. <laughs> And that's whatever it was, it was fine. She also is, as I mentioned before, giving this money away without a lot of restrictions and a lot of expectations and control. And so she has given this money away as general operating support grants. So allowing the nonprofit to use the money however they want. And thirdly, really recognizing that we need to invest in the nonprofit's That we're supporting. So too often there's this, I believe misguided belief. And I think it stems from a scarcity mindset that the best organizations, the best nonprofits to support are the ones where 99 cents of every dollar given to them goes to like help the people and only one cent is spent on overhead or administration, right? That somehow that is good. I think it's a bad approach because like as business owners, right? We know the importance of investing in our own professional development and talent. And just like a nonprofit, you want them to have top talent. You want them to have good infrastructure, technology, great financial management systems, the ability to raise funds, communicate, a good board of directors, all of that. Well, that requires investment, right? It requires hiring a strategic planning consultant such as myself, like, costs money, right? But it helps the nonprofit to be more effective in the long run because they have the right strategy and the right team to execute it and the right systems and infrastructure to pull it all off. And so, what I like about Mackenzie Scott's approach is that she believes that too. And so, she really believes that these nonprofits can use the money however they want. And if part of that is investing in themselves, investing in their growth, and I don't mean investing in their board retreat on, you know, right. in Bora Bora, right? right. I mean, right. like, investing in having a board retreat that actually has food, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, has a paid facilitator to facilitate it.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was a huge takeaway for me. And it was an eye opener sitting on a board reading that. And I was like, you know what? This makes sense. You know, you need to reinvest. You need to reinvest in the people. Otherwise you're not going to keep them. And where the 15% number came from or what have you, I don't know, but I think that also it may. Need some change in terms of some of these evaluation charitable companies that the charity navigators of the world who evaluate Mm -hmm. companies. Mm -hmm. I think there may have to be a change in their vision regarding that in order to kind of encompass that. But I agree with you. I mean, listen, you don't want to be spending money just for the sake of spending money. Quickly, I'll share a story. When I first got involved with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, they had an office at 129 Wall Street. And I was overlooking the Brooklyn Bridge. And I went in there and I said, how much does this cost? I'm asking people to donate money. What does this rent look like? And the reality was they were paying less in rent for that space in New York City than they would be spending in space on Long Island, where I'm located, because the building they were in, were getting the owners at the time were getting huge tax breaks for having not-for-profits in their building. So they were paying a fraction of what New York State rental rates were. And I said, okay, that makes sense. You know, you want a nice place to go to work. I just don't want to be paying two times what we should be. And that's a perfect example where sometimes perception is not reality, but you want to be able to invest in your people. You want to have the money available to do that. And you have to treat it like a business and have those processes and procedures in place to let the nonprofit do what they need to do and grow and get better. So that was a huge eye-opener for me. You kind of alluded to it before with regard to the opposite of transformational giving is what you named the new book, Delusional Altruism. So can you just give our listeners a quick snippet? We know what the transformational giving is. What is delusional altruism?
0: Yeah. Delusional altruism is being genuine in wanting to make a difference and change the world and be altruistic, which I think most donors and I'm sure most of your listeners would fall into that category genuinely wanting to make a difference and change the world, but getting in your own way and preventing yourself from having the impact that you seek. And so delusional doesn't mean crazy. Right. It just means you're kind of clinging on to misguided beliefs and practices that are actually hamstringing yourself and also hamstringing the organizations that you want to support. And so that, you know, what we were just talking about is a perfect example of believing that somehow it's noble that all the money goes to help the people And none of it goes to help, you know, the actual organization that's trying to help the people, right? And so that's, it's such a myth that everyone holds on to. But at the end of the day, really all you're doing is, you know, if that's your approach to giving, you're really forcing the nonprofit to hire less effective staff because they can pay them less, right? Well, how's that going to help you and your cause, right? Not very well. (laughs) It's not, right? Or not have technology so that when there is a, you know, we all have to rush home for work, they're not able to function, and a right. lot of nonprofits closed because they just simply couldn't manage all of that. They didn't have a strategy, they didn't have the infrastructure, they didn't have any technology and they couldn't function.
1: Yeah, I love the book and I agree with you if you're thinking about if you have a if you're selling a business, you're involved in philanthropy, you want to get involved in philanthropy, I think it gives you a lot of food for thought on how to get started and what you should be thinking about and some things about what you shouldn't be thinking about. You know, you have to take out of that thought process and mindset. So what's up next for you, Chris, Chris Putnam-Walkerly? What's up next?
0: Well, let's see. I am doing a lot more, as I mentioned before, coaching and serving as a trusted advisor. So a lot of my work is focused on that and helping my clients. I do that in a few ways. One is a like a 12-month container of support, I call it, which is starting with a planning day and then providing weekly or biweekly coaching with my clients and helping them to navigate their philanthropic journey, get clarity on what they're trying to accomplish, create a lot of change, and make course corrections along the way and help them stay accountable to those goals. So I'm expanding that work. And I'm not quite sure if a third book will be in my repertoire, but that's always possible.
1: All right, great. Well, we'll be looking forward to it, hopefully, and we'll be have our eyes out if we see any announcements. And Chris, it's been great having you on the show. We end every show asking each of our guests the same question because this is the Midland money mindset. And I love that we talked about mindset during our time together today. And that is what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success?
0: Well, that's a great question. And I would say I listened to my own advice about the abundance mindset and the importance of investing in ourselves so in the book, I write about not just investing in nonprofits, but I think donors need to invest in themselves too, their own learning and coaching and advice and infrastructure even. And one of the ways I think we all can invest in ourselves is simply taking care of ourselves. So this morning I got up, brought my 92-year-old mom who can barely see a cup of coffee, and then I went off and went for a walk, which I try to do every morning around Lake Chautauqua and time for reflection and physical energy and exercise and letting my mind kind of wander, which I think is really important. Having that time to just be free and relax and have unstructured space and time. So to me, that investment in myself is really important for my mental health and for my physical health. And so I can tackle the day.
1: I love it. That's great. It's a great way to start the day. And I appreciate that. We'll have all this information in the show notes, but just so people can hear it, if people want to find you, connect with you, learn more, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: Yeah, well anyone who's listening who is you know anywhere in their philanthropic journeys, getting started or maybe seasoned and trying to make a shift, I would be delighted to just talk with you if I can have a you know conversation with you if I could be of any help and guiding you, and you can simply go to the website schedule a call with chris.com schedule a call with chris.com and there's a page, and you can just pick a date and time that works for your schedule. And I'd be happy to give you any advice that I can. And that links to my website. So all my information, contact information, the book, social media, everything is there.
1: Awesome. Well, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show, Chris. I thank you for taking out your time today and sharing your story and the book Delusional Altruism with us and make it a great day.
0: Thank you so much, Larry. Thanks for having me.
1: I want to thank Chris Putnam Walker Lee for being a guest on the Mintland Money Mindset. Chris has taken her love for philanthropy and used it to help philanthropists make a bigger impact. What a rewarding career to help others make the world a better place and have a tremendous impact on the world around them. Be sure to pick up her most recent book, Delusional Altruism, as I'm sure you will find some great nuggets in there, as I did. Chris can be found across all social media platforms and all the contact information needed to find her can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit Call right from our website, or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money.
0: The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with
1: CWM LLC.